Welcome to Emerge, the podcast bringing you closer to strategies in an increasingly diverse ecosystem, the polycultural general market. I'm your host, Kari Motain. Together, we'll talk about the challenges and successes of businesses that successfully bring their brands into the fold of inclusion. The millennial, Gen Z, LGBTQ, multicultural, and disabled communities can't be called emerging anymore. They are emerged. This is Emerged. Welcome to today's podcast. Uh, For today, we actually are being joined with a guest co-host, Josh. So Josh, I'll let you introduce yourself. Hi, everybody. This is uh, Josh Boaz. I'm the managing director and co-founder of Direct Agents. I work with Kari very closely on our uh, polycultural team and all our our DEI efforts. Thanks, Kari, for having me on the podcast. Yeah, of course. Pleasure to have you. And for uh, those who uh, follow like the Direct Agents uh, Network, you know, you'll recognize Josh is also the the host of Rising as well, which is another one of our podcasts. Um, and then today we're being joined uh, by uh, by Tristan Francis, who you know I think uh, we will run through a little bit of a brief background on on his own uh, professional experience. But um, Tristan's actually joining us from Singapore, uh, and has been very kind to join us at a uh, at a very early hour. So um, we'll, we thank him for joining us today. But Tristan uh, has had a broad range of experience, starting out, um, you know, as an associate at the Morgan Stanley, uh, you know, and working his way through a, a number of different departments, um, and has, you know, really after his MBA program at Harvard Business School has uh, moved on into, into consulting and really uh, currently is serving at the, as the design manager of uh, BCG's Leadership Institute. So welcome to the podcast, Tristan. Thank you. I'm excited for the conversation. Yeah, we're excited to have you as well. Um, so, you know, I think that, you know, going through your, your, your very impressive credentials, we, we really want to just start off in terms of, you know, getting an idea of what you're working on right now and then you know, in terms of the work that you've done so far throughout your career, you know, where, where you're seeing as, uh, you know, some of the, the, the big highlights, but starting out, you know, tell us what you're, what you're currently working on and, and what your current role as design manager really entails. Yeah. So the current role with the Boston Consulting Group is we're building out what's effectively an executive education platform for our Asia Pacific clients. So at the moment we have about 120 clients that are on board going through a five month program. And in addition to the five-month program, they also go through one-on-one coaching. All of these individuals, for the most part, about 60% of them are CEO minus one. Uh, And so these are all, and the rest of it is uh, really high potential CEO minus two, but these are all individuals that are already leading within their organizations in a very meaningful way. And we feel like in the years to come, we'll take on increasing uh, responsibilities. So the idea of what we're trying to do is how can we provide them with perspective, knowledge, expertise, broaden their network, basically increase the chance of them being successful as they continue along in their leadership journey. So my role as the design manager is really uh, designing the content in terms of the curriculum that the executives go through. Uh, So they focus largely on topics revolving around strategy, organization, and personal leadership. But what specifically within that they focus on is a lot of what I spend my time thinking about. And then as well as how do we uh, get this program off of the ground from an operational perspective as well, because it's a new area, so to say, that we're venturing into and building out. So 
that's what I've been doing and, and focused on for uh, the past six months within BCG or, or so. Before that, I was in the generalist consulting track doing a variety of projects kind of spanning across financial services, TMT, and industrials. Tristan, I noticed from your um, just your, your resume that you also on the side do professional development for, for you know your mm-hmm. network as well. Is there, sounds similar a little bit to your current job. Is there a coincidence is that your current position is in that area? Yeah. So in terms of the things that I do on the side, so for the past 10 years or so, I've been hosting professional development events and they're always open invite. They're always pro bono. I I mainly do them just because I myself am a first generation college student and I benefited a tremendous amount from mentors that would have, you know, make it possible for me to have conversations that I couldn't have otherwise just because of the experiences that I was getting in the business world were different than uh, and beyond than anything that my family had seen or experienced before. So I couldn't necessarily have these conversations at a dinner table. So instead I had these conversations with mentors and so forth. And I just wanted to create a platform for other people to do that as well. So uh, initially these events were in person during COVID. I started doing the events virtually and actually realized that virtual was a good format for doing them. So I do them uh, roughly one to two times a month and Uh, They are connected in the sense that when it comes to how I spend my time, uh, there's really two guiding things for me in terms of the problems that I want to focus on. One is at an individual level, how do you help people reach their full potential? And then the second is at an organizational level, how do you help companies reach their full potential? And, And particularly from a culture perspective and how can you ensure employees are engaged? And so as long as I'm working on one of those two things, that's the type of content that makes me happy. So I think it's uh, probably not a coincidence that the job that I decided to take on at BCG, it feels connected to the work that I'm doing on the side, but I think it's more so uh, as opposed to me having proactively sought something specifically like that out. I think it's more so my guiding principle it really influences what I do both personally and professionally. So I think there's will always be a decent amount as you're pointing to of overlap between how I'm spending that time on the work front and then how I'm also spending the time on the personal front. Makes a lot of sense. Um, and I know Tristan, our shared connection was really that we, we went to high school together at, at boarding school at Petty. Um, and you've made your way through, you know, I think some of the, the higher end of the educational institutions in the in the country. So we really want to get your input in terms of how you feel about the progress that educational systems have really made, uh, you know, opening doors for for students from underserved communities. Yeah, you know, it's a it's a really interesting question and perspective that I think even more about now being based in Singapore and just seeing how different the educational system is in other parts of the world and so forth. I would say. Overall, I think that when it comes to the U.S. education system, U.S. is obviously fantastic when it comes to elite institutions, but I do think that there's huge area for improvement when it comes to institutions in underserved communities. Um, and so I would actually say that in my mind, the gap is really huge uh, today in terms of where the schools need to be. I do want to commend the nonprofit organizations that really step in and fill the gap in some ways. So whether that's, you know, organizations like Management Leadership for Tomorrow or Sponsors for Educational Opportunity, I think that some of these organizations, uh, and I could really go on and on and on, I just listing two that I happen to be an alum of, but I think that 
these organizations and some of these nonprofits really step in and fill a gap so that those from underserved communities do still have an opportunity to, you know, put themselves on another track that will change not only their own life and trajectory, but one of the things that I find really impactful about this particular demographic is oftentimes if you can change the life of this one individual who's coming from a more underserved community, uh, you know that that individual is going to go then turn around and change the life of everybody in their immediate family as well as their future family. So there's a really big ripple effect when you can get it right uh, in terms of people who are coming from this community. So uh, I would say, though, that I think that today, in terms of structurally, there's a big gap and room for improvement in terms of um how well everybody on average is prepared in some of these communities that are more underserved and don't have the same access to resources. Just on that, um, I mean, there's been a lot of commentary that I think elite schools, I mean, by their nature, being elite are very exclusionary and, and, and you know, keep the numbers down of just the total amount of applicants they can bring in on purpose. And do you feel like that, you know, the elite schools should, you know, open up and, and get, you know, get bigger? Like I know there's a podcaster, Professor Scott Galloway, and he always talks about how Ivy, Ivy League schools need to just, you know, really increase their uh, their attendance just because they have the money to do it. They have the wherewithal they, and they should increase the amount of seats. Do you think that's one, a solution or do you feel like there's other areas that need to change first? Uh, I think that that is a solution in the sense that I think that it would help. I don't know that it is a solution if I think about it through a lens of what I could practically envision happening. I, I don't know that I would practically envision that happening. Um, and I also think that uh, I would place more of it on the structural challenges, as an example, the way that the tax dollars are funneled through um, that make it so that public schools and suburbs have so much more resources than inner city schools. I think that, yeah, I would I would place more of the solution on the way that tax dollars are moving into uh, into schools as opposed to uh, private institutions, um, because do I think that that could help the problem? Yes, but I, I don't know that I would put the onus of this particular problem on private universities as opposed to putting the onus of the problem really on on government and tax dollars and where tax dollars are going. So I think that that to me is is, is the bigger solution. Um, and then on top of that, I also think that uh, the elite universities and the competitiveness of the elite universities is something, if I think about what are some of the areas that make the United States really competitive and interesting from a global perspective, I actually think that the fact that we have these elite universities is one of the things that really puts us, you know, gives us a leg up on an international stage. I wouldn't look to solve the problem that way personally, but it is an interesting idea, actually. And I'm going to go back and research and learn more about what Professor Galloway is, is doing and saying, because I'm familiar with some of his other work and a fan of some of his other work um, and not as familiar with this. And it's an interesting concept. So I, I want to learn a bit more about how he sees that. Great. And then and just you, you mentioned just being like a first generation college student um, and, you know, I'm a first generation immigrant. So I think that same kind of concept, like, you know, having those, those networks to talk to and to understand it's just coming from a different world. Um, trying When you're thinking about these the broader educational system, where do you think the impact needs to be? Like at what stage of someone's educational development or professional development is like, where's, 
where should resources and time go to really make the biggest impact? Yeah, so from that perspective, I'm a big fan of the Harlem Children's Zone, their philosophy and their model, which effectively is, you know, start with people at the youngest possible age. So in terms of some of the work that the Harlem Children's Zone do, they begin working with parents. Uh, specifically, they begin working with mothers uh, from the time when they're pregnant um, to already start to you know, educate the parents in terms of here are some of the things that you need to know in terms of the development of your child. Because I think so much of this boils down to access to information and access to resources and, and things like that. And so they really have this model of start, you know, from the time that the mother is, you know, from the time that the child is before the child is even born through let's get them all the way through college and into their first job. And that I, I think that when it comes to where uh, dollars are best invested, I think that they are best invested the younger, the, the better. Um, I think you have a, a bigger, bigger impact. And of course, I think there still needs to be some resources that are going to people that, um, you know, are in these communities and struggling and, and programs need to exist that there's opportunities for everybody. But I think that in terms of where new dollars go, the biggest bang for your buck, from my perspective, is the younger is uh, the better. Yeah, I feel like the, the Teak Fellowship in New York also does a really good job of that, where they start not quite as young. I think that's very ambitious and, and very impressive that um, that they're taking even from before the child is born. But I know that the Teak Fellowship does that with uh, around, I think it's like the, the middle school age. And I think that like they get a lot of success with uh, guiding folks into their into their first jobs with that with that kind of methodology. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, where do you see, you know, in terms of aside from just like, you know, the investing of resources like, where do you see, uh, I guess, private institutions, also mentors like yourself fitting in um, in terms of like, I guess, like bridging that that gap? I think a lot of it is experience based. And I think a lot of times there is that encouragement of taking on professional mentees when you're, you know, when they're like matriculated and in, and in the fields. But do you feel like there's a place for uh, for that like earlier on as well? Yeah, I definitely think that there's a place for that. And from my perspective, I think where there's the big opportunity is just anything that bridges these two worlds. As an example, uh, if you created a program that took the senior executives of you know, places like Walmart or especially places that sell to a lot of people from lower income underserved communities and really structurally design a partnership of some sort that actually forced the executive to spend a meaningful amount of time in the company, in the communities where they were selling their products, time, not money, um, I, time and money. But particularly, I think that the money is already there in terms of like social impact work that a lot of these organizations do on the side. What's not there is, is the time. Um, and because the time is not there, I think that uh, the people who are in that community, they've never seen a lot of these individuals before. So it's hard for them to wrap their head around what is actually possible. And if I think about, you know, if I translate that to, you know, an individual example, then, you know, from my perspective growing up, I, I felt like if you wanted to make a lot of money, there was two ways to do it. You were going to be an athlete or you're going to be an entertainer. And like those were the two options for making a lot of money. I had no idea that you could go 
you know, into investment banking or and make a tremendous, you know, I, I had no idea what investment banking was. I had no idea that you could go and work for a, a, a tech company and make more than six figures when you graduate. There, There's all of these things that I just had no idea that this is also a viable path towards money. And I think that, you know, especially when you're talking about what's going to motivate, you know, a 10-year-old, an 11-year-old, a 12-year-old from an underserved community to the, the thing that's going to motivate them is the promise of a better life and the promise of the things that they think they can only achieve through uh, through athletics and entertainment because that's the only way where they see people who look like them that have uh, things that are expensive and nice and so forth. And so um, now I think as people go through their life, they realize that there's a lot more out there than than money and the appeal of money probably for most people will once they at least attain a, a decent amount of it, I think the appeal of it will decrease. And there's research that shows like your happiness doesn't really increase over 80,000 a year, but a, even 80,000 a year uh, is a lot more than, than a lot of people than the vast you know majority of people are achieving um, at meaningful stages of their life. So I, I think that I would just want to create a program of some sort that would bring more of these individuals into the community, not for one hour visits, uh, but for some sort of sustained partnership that will allow that student from the underserved community to get a, a perspective into what this person's life actually looks like, to have transparency around how much the person is actually paid um, so that they can see what a promising life is ahead of them if they, you know, decide to you know allocate their their time and energy to uh, to a- academics as an example over over athletics and that, and that's not to say that I'm not trying to discount people who are who are committed to sports and so forth I think there's a tremendous amount of value you learn from teamwork but I just think that that shouldn't be seen as the sole outlet for success uh, for people from some of these communities and I think at the moment it is and you'd say that in your world, if you were able to design that program, would that happen from like middle school onwards? Like when would be the kind of the touch points? And Yeah, I, I think it would happen from that's around what I would have in my mind, because I, I don't know that how much could be done at like a kindergarten level as an example. But I think if you're if you're speaking about middle school students, I think that's when in, in my mind, it should start to happen whenever it is in a child's development where they start to really think seriously about that question of what might I want to do when I grow up. Um, now, when I was growing up, you know, I wanted to make it to the MBA. So I was an example of the the anecdote that I'm sharing. Um, around that time when I'm making the decision that I want to make it to the MBA, I should also be really familiar with what my life looks like if I decide that I want to go into to tech or what my life looks like if I want to, you know, go into financial services and what that path looks like. And I should understand um, that path and the likelihood of that path, I should say, because that's where the big difference is. Like, what's the likelihood that you make a good living in tech or financial services versus the likelihood that you make a good living um, in athletics and entertainment? Um, So... I would just want that program to start around that time that the ideas are bubbling up in people's minds so that they're familiar and know that there are other options that exist out there. I think another inflection point is just around college, just getting that first job. I know there's a lot of programs, you know, to to help uh, with internships and different things. And we've, you know, actually Corey has helped us uh, spearhead some of that at direct agents. But um, I just see the, 
varying qualities, right? You see just ability to interview, ability to have a conversation at a professional level, make eye contact, and, you know, just the basics. Um, some people who, just because I think of what their background is, they've been around that for a long time, their families, from, they come from professional families, they, they have that. It's like they grew up with that around a dinner table, right? So it's so easy for them to make an impression without anything else other than just to just go to college. Um, and I think if that's, that's such a big you know, starting point, right? If you can teach people that those skills and get them into a good professional interview and then they can get a, whatever good, a good job to start with an internship, it starts right that, that whole trajectory of their career. Um, so the more, I think the, the more that can be done there, the better. And I know we, we've had some good experiences with, with helping out with internships and, and different things. And, uh, and on the flip side, I've had people who reached out because they're just my network to try to get their kids to, to get internships. And, you know, and, and there's a lot of that that goes on and that's, like the, the ugly side of it too, right? Just mm -hmm. because of who you know and who you can call up and then your kid is, uh, you know, on a path. And I don't know how you stamp that out. I think that's, unfortunately, it's there, but it's uh, it, it doesn't help the situation. Yeah, yeah. Changing, uh, changing tunes a little bit, I think, you know, Tristan, obviously, um, you've had a lot of success kind of moving through a couple of different uh, career paths. Um, and really, we, we try and leverage this podcast as a resource for, uh, you know, young professionals who are, are looking to either make a shift and, and, you know, kind of like lean into to multicultural strategy or polycultural strategy, as we refer to it. Um, but, you know, what do you have advice for in terms of, you know, leaders who are looking to have those conversations about, you know, diversity, equity and inclusion, how that's impacting business units and like, you know, really what the business side of that is? To their boss, I think that it's it's not always easy, especially if it's you know a conversation with an organization that does not have that infrastructure in place already. Um, but what you know, I think especially from your work at Morgan Stanley and throughout your career, what some advice would you have in terms of like when you're approaching that conversation? Yeah, so uh, I think back. So this would have been about eight years ago, back in 2014. I pivoted into a role at Morgan Stanley on our multicultural client strategies team. At that point, it was a newly launched team that was focused on increasing the business that we do with Asian, Black, and Hispanic clients, just with the recognition that if we looked at Morgan Stanley's footprint, most of the individuals that we were interacting with were white men for the most part. And if you look at the uh, trends in terms of wealth, as well as board seats, as well as uh, C-suite positions, obviously that's becoming increasingly diverse in the U.S., which I think is a good thing. There's still obviously a lot of progress to be happening there. But generally, if you look at the macro trend, uh, it, it is moving in that direction. And so the idea was we launched this business unit um, to focus on how do we really have better relationships and partnerships with these communities in a meaningful capacity where it's win-win um, and what I love about it, and, and this effort was uh, spearheaded by Carla Harris, who's a vice chairman at, at Morgan Stanley, uh, has been with the firm for over 30 years. Uh, she herself is a, a black woman from the South, one of the most inspiring individuals I've come across. In addition to being a banker, she's also a gospel singer. She's had five sold out concerts at Carnegie Hall. She's you know, oh. performed at Madison Square Garden. She's on, the chair, she's on the board of Walmart. She's on the board of Harvard. So just incredibly inspiring individual. Uh, and one of the things that I really appreciate about her uh, perspective day one when we were starting this was, look, first we have to really help the leaders understand exactly as you're saying, Cara, we have to, we have to help leaders understand how this is going to impact their bank account. Um, and then, you know, we can, you know, so basically she wasn't trying to do this through the lens of this is the right thing to do. 
Now, that that is more of like a philosophical. She, she of course, believes that it's the right thing to do, but she really wanted to do it through the economically, it makes sense to do it. So she has, you know, a podcast uh, called Access and Opportunities. And the uh, the the angle of the podcast is it basically speaks about underrepresented minorities that are entrepreneurs and have businesses that she feels like are underlooked by investors. Um, and that's an example of something that she'll speak about. So she'll constantly and repeatedly put content out there to say, look, this is a good business opportunity that I'm putting in front of you, not because, you know, the, the founder happens to be a woman, not because the founder happens to be black or Hispanic or Asian or something like that, but because this is just purely a good business. Um, and of course, throughout her career and all of the uh, things that she's done at, at Morgan Stanley, you know, she's kind of proven herself to have that A++ business and financial acumen. So now she can go out on the front lines and say, look, I'm putting in front of you a good business opportunity. And, uh, and people know her ability there um, based on her credibility that she's built up throughout her career. So I, I think what I loved about the, this and and this ultimately, you know, led to uh, an incubator that Morgan Stanley has launched, and now we bring in entrepreneurs uh, from that that are underrepresented minorities, uh, and will invest directly in them. So a lot of these are really efforts uh, that uh, this team that I was fortunate to join in 2014, which was led by Carla. Uh, this this team was really focused on building out for Morgan Stanley, but that's the model when it comes to. Um, really moving the needle that that I personally have the most confidence in is how do you convince the people with deep pockets uh, to take a serious look at these businesses, which they might not know just because the individuals didn't grow up in the same community as them. Uh, so their, their, their business idea doesn't get floated to them, but how do you really take, you know, get these individuals with deep pockets to take a look at some of these opportunities, because once they take a look and they open their eyes and they do the, and they run their numbers the way they would the normal way, I think they'll see actually, these are really compelling opportunities in front of us, as opposed to, um, I don't think that, you know, setting up any sort of relationship that feels like charity is beneficial for either side. Um, I think we really want people with deep pockets to see the opportunities here to then then put the capital in there. Uh, and I think that that's what uh, I think that that's what makes a really big difference when that's you know, when that's happening. And I think that it, you know, if we can increase the number of black owned VCs that are out there. So, you know, another person who went to high school with uh, Kari and myself is is Jared Tingle, who co-founded Harlem Capital, uh, which is a venture capital fund that's, you know, backed at this point by KKR, backed by TPG. Um, they've raised a tremendous amount of money in there, investing directly in, you know, underrepresented minorities um, at, that have launched businesses. And I think that that's, you know, really great to have people in an investing capacity uh, that that through the deep pockets that they're able to obtain through partnerships with organizations like KKR, TPG, and so forth, then have real dollars to be able to put behind these companies. I think that that's another thing. So the more and more I see, you know, females and, and underrepresented minorities leading VCs, I think that the better. So I think that that's a really big part of the equation is access to capital and, and who is in the decision-making seats from those perspectives. And from, you know, you deal with a lot of larger companies. In those companies, do you feel like the DEI initiatives 
are they are they driven more from the I guess the financial you know this is good good business for us to do or is it the right thing to do or is it just because societal pressure is pushing us to do it like how do you feel like the decisions are being made at, at some of the larger companies and when it comes to these kind of efforts yeah I think at the larger companies I think that there's uh, it, it's a combination uh, there's definitely pressure to do something. Like, I don't know that you can be a large company in 2022 and do absolutely nothing. Um, so I think that there's pressure to, you know, at the very least hire somebody uh, who is, is supposed to focus on this initiative. But where I think the disconnect is, is you can hire somebody, but how much credibility does that person actually have within the context of your organization? And I think that that is where things fall you know, short. So if you hire somebody that's a chief diversity and inclusion officer, but effectively you were to go to the 50 most important people in the organization and ask them to list the people that influence their decision making, and this individual is nowhere on that list, then the organization isn't really doing anything by having somebody as a chief diversity inclusion officer if they're not really an, an influential individual within the context of the organization. And so I think that the result of that is uh, is effectively what a lot of people would call companies that are doing lip service and making it look like they care, but they're not actually doing it. And I don't think that there are really organizations out there that are intentionally doing lip service. Like there's no, that wouldn't make economic sense for them. It doesn't make sense to hire somebody and then have them bring no value into the organization. But I think that the difficulty is that when they're like, when they hire somebody, they're not setting the person up for success, they're not giving them the right level of influence within the context of their organization. And I think that that is, I think that that's the challenge. So I think the challenge that organizations face is more with the implementation as opposed to the intent. I think that the intent and the desire is there. I just don't think that many organizations know how to do this well. Um, and uh, and there aren't a lot of organizations that are doing it well. And because there aren't a lot of organizations that are doing it well, if you're attempting to do it, if you're genuinely attempting to do it well, even if you're failing, that makes you, you know, pretty average to a, a, above average, which is okay for most organ like most organizations can then take a seat back and say, okay, we're doing, you know, we're doing more than our competitors are here. So we're fine. So I think that the pace as a result of that has been, has been really, has been really slow uh, because of, mm. because of that. Yeah. I mean, one of the common areas that I see, I think that the, the structure is a, is a great point. Um, one of the common areas that I see is that DEI initiatives being absorbed into like just the HR apparatus, for example, um, and having the chief diversity officer, for example, report in with the CHRO and not even having a direct line to the, you know, to the CEO. Um, and that's something that I've heard a lot with, you know, a lot of DEI consultants in the space as being like one of the other, you know, top priorities that, or top like concerns is that if you don't even have a line into, uh, you know, to the person who's leading the company, like, you know, that automatically, like we, we can always see in management, like what one rung or two rungs can, can do in terms of like being able to communicate that and actually execute. 
Yeah, it's the frequency of the conversation, um, you know, so if you have an organization that chief diversity officer is reporting directly into the CEO, then you know in terms of the percentage of time that the CEO spends thinking about uh, diversity and inclusion topics, you know that that's going to be driven higher in those organizations. Um, and obviously the way that organizations are structured, the CEO is then speaking to the board and the combination of that C-suite and the board of directors is effectively setting the tone for the rest of the organization. So absolutely, I think that reporting lines make a really big difference because it kind of uh, in a certain way structurally sets up what's top of mind for the CEO of the organization. And if you were, uh, you know, if you were to give advice to a kind of a rising professional, you know, maybe a, a minority starting out in, in, you know, in your industry, for example, what any any words of wisdom you'd give them, like looking back, like well, how would you, you know, help them get started and navigating this this journey? Yeah. So for me, I think the three words that always come to mind are reflect, improve, and confidence. And I think when it comes to these three words, the reason is I always think that. In my own experience, I've benefited from thinking about what can I do in my situation to become a better per version of myself, uh, you know, whether it's, yeah, and, and, and the thing about life is you get another attempt to recreate yourself in a, in a slightly better way every single day. So how can you be better on Tuesday than you were on Monday? How can you be better on Wednesday than you were on Tuesday and so forth? So for me, it's like, you know, self-reflection, self-improvement, self-confidence. From a reflection perspective, I think it all begins uh, with knowing your values, knowing what's important to you, and knowing where you're trying to go, which is why I spent so much time thinking about, you know, as an example, the two things that I want to do, how do you help people reach their full potential, and how do you help companies and organizations create a culture where their employees are engaged? As soon as I figured out, you know, which came through a lot of reflection, what would be a, a body of work that really excites me. It gives so much clarity to other aspects of my life. It allows when recruiters reach out to me and say, hey, Tristan, are you interested in this opportunity? If it doesn't fit those, those criteria, I've gotten to a point where I can just immediately say no. And, and saying no to things that don't interest you saves you a tremendous amount of time. Um, but to know what doesn't interest you, you really have to do that difficult work of figuring out what is it that actually, you know, you know, people would describe this as passion or purpose or things like that. You, you have to do a lot of work on yourself to understand what that is uh, before you can really get that benefit of that clarity. So I think that it starts with reflection. Then I think once you have that clarity, you know, from in my mind, it moves into improvement. And then that's what we're talking about in terms of how do you consistently get better every single day. And when it comes to improvement, I think that, you know, as an example, if you're trying to be, um, you know, if one of the things I would like to do one day is I would like to do a lot of you know, speaking at a, at a very global level. And that means I have to constantly get better as a communicator, which is, you know, means that Things like this, doing podcasts where I'm practicing communicating and packaging messages and so forth. That's all, all of this in my mind is practiced towards becoming a better version of myself. Uh, and so I think that that's the improvement piece. 
And then the last piece in this all is uh, confidence. And I think that this is one that in my mind, I would particularly say for people uh, from underserved communities or for people who find themselves, uh, whether you find yourself as the only you know, female in the room that's male dominated, or you find yourself as you know, the only black or Hispanic or Asian person in a room that's, not, that, that's primarily white, whatever the context is, when you find yourself as the only one of something in a room, it's a really uncomfortable position and you start to question whether or not you belong in that room. So I think that confidence is the last piece of the equation that I put in there because I think most people sell themselves short, especially younger professionals that assume they don't really have value to bring into a conversation uh, and, and assume that they're so young within the context of a company that you know maybe it doesn't make sense for them to speak up in meetings and certain things. I think that... Uh, confidence and and if you can give yourself a little bit of an injection of confidence um which i think will come with the 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 clarity right because when you go through that process of reflection you'll start to get a sense of okay maybe i not maybe i'm not quite as old as as my manager but what is it about my lived experience that actually gives me a unique perspective that's beneficial for the team um and and that's the type of thing that when you have that and clarity on that, now you can have a little bit more context in meetings in terms of, you know, speaking up, bringing your perspective, because that's what companies are paying for when they hire you. I think too often uh, people assume that when you're junior and you're hired into an organization, you're just hired um, to execute the, the vision of your manager. Um, and that's you know, partially what you're hired to do in terms of there's going to be, of course, tasks and things you need to do. Uh, but you're also being paid to come into an organization to bring your perspective into an organization. That's why you know diversity and inclusion is, is so important because the, the whole premise is these are really important perspectives that need to be in these organizations. So you need to go out and buy that talent effectively into your organization so that you then have the ability to think about things through the eyes of the communities where you're selling products and things like that. So, um, yeah, so I, I would say that uh, I go back to my advice for people navigating this process is always start with self-reflection, pinpoint those areas of improvement, and then really execute as best you can with confidence. That's great advice. And I think uh, it's pretty clear, just like uh, I think every conversation that I've had with you, Tristan, the importance that mentorship has had. Um, and I know you you even had a, a few events last year around, you know, how to cultivate, uh, you know, authentic mentorships and your advice in terms of finding a good mentor. But can you share, you know, a couple of nuggets of that um, for our audience here? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say in terms of finding a mentor, I think the First thing is I would identify what is the trait or expertise or characteristic that you really admire about the person that you want to learn from. All right, so I think it's like identifying that goal of the mentorship relationship before you just dive into. Sometimes I think that there's, you know, when you're in college, there's a frenzy to run around and like find somebody that you can call your mentor. And it really, what matters is, is what you're actually learning from the individual. So I, I, I always tell people start with the trait that you want to learn and then uh, really do your best to research the person and figure out if they're going to be a good mentor. And from my perspective, good mentor uh, really means that they're going to 
be open to having that relationship with you that will allow you the level of proximity that you need to learn from them. So that's one of it. Um, and the, 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 the second piece is, are you, is there going to be enough commonality between your values that you really hit it off with them? Then w once you find the trait that you're looking to develop and you feel like this person would be a high quality mentor, then you go and you do the work in terms of actually building the relationship. And from my perspective, I think the best way to build a relationship is to work on a project with somebody. Um, so the, you know, find something and you really want to set this relationship up so that it's a two way street. So you want to set it up so that you benefit from this relationship, but also so that they benefit from the relationship as well. So if it's a really senior executive, take a step back and think about what is a, what's a cause that he or she supports? And is that a cause that I also care about? If so, do they have a young alumni board that maybe I can get involved in? And now I can really align myself with this, this, this leader. Um, and then I think it's just, you know, and then I think it's just time. The other thing is like these relationships, they do build over time because it's not just about uh, having one super high quality conversation with a person. And now this person's going to be excited to invest their time and energy into your professional development. You need to show up consistently. You need to show them, you know, they need to in their mind say, OK, I remember this person back in 2012. And like, I was impressed by what this person was doing because of this. And now in 2017, they need to think to themselves, hmm, I'm impressed by what this person is doing for this. And now in 2020, they, too, they, they say, okay, I'm impressed by what, and, and over the span of years, now they're really bought in and they say, okay, I've seen this person, you know, he's really on it and he's trying to do all the right things and he's really methodical and thoughtful and impactful and all these things. And that's what gets the, the investment in you and the buy-in. Um, and so if I just play that, you know, formula or blueprint out in terms of an actual example, I think even so Carla Harris, who I was speaking earlier about, she's a big part of the reason that I ended up going to Morgan Stanley in the first place, um, her and other individuals. But if I had to pick one person, it would be Carla. Uh, and at the time, you know, I was deciding between offers at Goldman and Morgan Stanley. And a big part of what attracted me to Morgan Stanley was individuals like Carla that I felt could be very strong mentors and you know the trait that really impressed me about carla was a combination of authenticity and clarity when i saw her standing in front of a room full of business executives uh even if it was a room full of predominantly white men and she's a black woman th th there was no part of me that felt like she was leaving who she was uh at the door before she stepped into the room and in my mind i just hadn't seen up close that level of authenticity and that level of clarity in, in which she makes her decisions um, and just executes and thinks. And it was it was so impressive and inspiring to me that I thought to myself, okay, Carla's somebody that I want some sort of proximity to. So I then, you know, I met her at a conference. I wasn't even at Morgan Stanley at this point, um, but she was giving the keynote at a conference and I went to, you know, up to her right after, uh, you know, I, I looked at the stage. I saw where the stairs were. I was like, okay, there's only one way off this stage. Let me go and position myself there so I can get a quick 30 seconds with her. And I dove into my 30 second speech, which was, hey, Carla, I'm really interested in Morgan Stanley. I, I have a lot of uh, friends that are a few years older than me and that are there. I think it's a great fit from a culture perspective. If I end up there, can we sit down and have a conversation? And Carla was like, yep, absolutely. No problem. This was back in 2000 and 10 and Carla was already a vice chairman at that point and so here I am this person who doesn't even have a job at Morgan Stanley but I'm asking her you know for 30 minutes if I can get a job at Morgan Stanley can I just sit down and have to and she agreed to it and then 
you know, fast forward, uh, I obviously got the internship with Morgan Stanley. During the internship, I reached out to Carla on the first day and was like, hey, Carla, can we meet for that 30 minutes during the internship? And we did. Uh, so we met and I was just completely blown away with how much she was able to change and impact positively my perspective in a 30 minute conversation, that that became one of the metrics that I now wanted for my life. I wanted to be able to really impact the way somebody sees themselves and their future in a 20, 30 minute conversation. Um, and so, but then, so I was like, okay, Carla is somebody that I really want to develop this relationship with. Uh, and then the next step was, okay, what are some of the causes that Carla's really passionate about? So I had mentioned sponsors for educational opportunity. Uh, she was actually a part of, you know, sponsors for education. I don't, I don't know how they've been around for many decades at this point. And Carla was a part of one of the initial classes as a part of sponsors for educational opportunity. And she's on the board of directors for the organization. Uh, and I, you know, was like, okay, this is a cause that Carla, that Carla's really passionate about. I'm an alum of it. I also love the work that they're doing. I'm just going to really dive into the sponsors for educational opportunity thing. And so I signed up to be Morgan Stanley's firm captain, which basically means there's about 50 summer in turns every year at that point that came into Morgan Stanley as a part of the Sponsors for Educational Opportunity. And I would meet one-on-one -on -one with every single one of these interns. And this, of course, is entirely outside of my the context of my job. I would meet with all of these interns. And then that would put me in a position to be able to update Carla on a topic that she's actually interested in. And so that allows you know, Carla to see me in an element that, you know, and then fast forward. So now when I found out about this new team that, you know, Morgan Stanley CEO has asked Carla to lead, now, I, you know, Carla already knows me through the context of somebody that just meets with her, you know, one to two times a year and also is super involved in SEO. So I step into that meeting you know, interviewing for a job and, and, you know, before I hope she knows who I am because we've already had multiple conversations, which allows us to really just, so that, that's an example. And then Carla, obviously, um, then you, when you're reporting to somebody, you have the opportunity to show up every single day and to deliver something every single day. And that really now takes it to a whole nother level. Um, and so Carla then has the ability to become a champion for me, uh, getting me involved in, you know, Morgan Stanley has uh, programs, they call one of them the strategy challenge where they bring in uh, top performing uh, people, high potential people from all around the organization and, and you're nominated by your manager. So Carla was able to get me into that program, even though I was the youngest person in the program at, at that point. Um, you know, writing my letter of recommendation for Harvard Business School, like all, all of these things, once you prove yourself to the individual, but again, that doesn't happen in the context of one or two conversations, that's consistently over the span of years showing up and delivering, you know, a, in delivering work that they feel like is a work, that's what brings you to the level where they will then invest in you. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm being long-winded intentionally in the example because I really want to walk through uh, the, the steps that go into building that relationship all along that journey from identifying the trait, uh, making sure that the value alignments are there, building the relationship based on a cause that's important to them, uh, and then ultimately showing up and delivering on a consistent basis. Because I feel like that for me has been you know, a formula that works really well in terms of building some of the most impactful mentorship relationships that I'm very fortunate to have had over the years. And I'd, I'd recommend uh, the recording on Tristan's website uh, specifically for that that mentorship uh, course. That was actually, I think, I think that was actually the first time that I, that I reconnected with Tristan was attending that, and I I thought it was very insightful. And I think the the greatest part about that Trist example, Tristan, is just that you 
I think a lot of times folks talk about mentorship, but then they also talk about sponsorship. And I think you've done a great job in your career in terms of like building a very methodical roadmap in terms of like not just getting a good mentor, but also like how to continuously like advance that mentorship into into sponsorship where possible, um, which is like, I think, a really important uh, delineation bet- for, for, for new, for new uh, for young professionals in particular. Um, so to wrap up, can you tell us a little bit about speaking of, you know, some of, uh, your upcoming series, uh, your upcoming webinar? Yeah. So the, the next one that I'll be doing is on the, it's in January and, and it is with a classmate of mine, Calvin Liu, and it's all about, uh, how do you live with greater intentionality? So the session is called Be Your Own Activist, uh, and the idea is how do you apply some of the principles of activist investing into your own personal life in terms of being proactive and being your own activist. Uh, and yeah, it's really, I'm excited for the conversation. Calvin's a close friend of mine, uh, extremely uh, thoughtful and methodical and leaving nothing to chance. So uh, please do feel free, anybody, to tune in for that conversation. But more importantly, I host conversations you know, once or twice a month. So if this particular topic isn't one that rings a bell for you, uh, feel free to tune in for any of them. And also feel free to shoot me a message on LinkedIn proposing a topic. That's where I think of most of my topic is people who have tuned in for sessions and say, hey, you know, is this something that you think you can speak of? And if it's a topic that I'm familiar with and it's connected to those core things, so everything that I do in, in one way is going to be connected to how do you help people reach their full potentials and how do you help an organization create a culture. So there's very little that I will do that will fall outside the realm of those things. Um, But if there's something that that falls inside the realm of those things, feel free to shoot me a message on LinkedIn and I'll do my best to either work it into an existing session that's upcoming or potentially create a new session around that entirely. So yeah, but um, Josh and Kari, really appreciate you both inviting me into the conversation and giving me this opportunity. 